Hi, everybody. I'm uh, delighted to have uh, Professor Veronica O'Keane uh, to speak with me today. This is the second podcast in uh, what I'm calling the Rough Cuts uh, podcast. I call it that because we don't have any musical intro or outro. And uh, what you're getting is the unedited uh, version of the podcast. I'm really thrilled to have Veronica speak with me today. She has a wonderful new book out called The Rag and Bone Shop, How We Make Memories and Memories Make Us. It's published by Alan Lane in hardback. It has the most beautiful cover and uh, it is a most beautifully written uh, and wonderful book. By way of background, Veronica is a psychiatrist uh, and uh, an academic. She has an extensive clinical practice, but also uh, an extensive uh, research portfolio. And we're going to talk to her today about this uh, fantastic book. So, Veronica, uh, your starter for six. Uh, very simple question. Why did you write this book? Hmm. I didn't expect that, Shane. Um, I wrote it because it, in a way, had to come out. I guess I've been working in disparate fields for about 37 years. And it seemed to me uh, my head was a buzzing um, in these different fields, um, both in clinical psychiatry and in neuroscience as it developed over the decades. And somehow or other, I was trying to fit it all together in my head, a cohesive picture of the new psychiatry, the psychiatry that's informed by everything we've learned about the brain. And this is what came out. It was something I almost needed to do for myself. And uh, it emerged in a sense organically. It took me quite a long time to write it because people tend to either really, I think, talk about the psychological um, aspects and the neuroscience aspects of uh, of neuroscience. But, you know, we, we very rarely see a book that tries to bring together clinical psychiatry with neuroscience and it's a very passionate wish of mine to bring more and more neuroscience into psychiatry so that individuals who suffer from mental illnesses uh, will feel they have a right to be ill. I think at the moment there's this idea that mental illness always has a cause and you can find the cause of that in your life's journey in uh, the dysfunctions of your childhood, which we all have, and um, so on and so forth. But uh, there's a, there's a, a less realization that, in fact, sometimes it's just there, and the brain is dysfunctional because it's wired in a dysfunctional way, or it's had an injury, and so on and so forth. And to to give an organic basis for that, I think, is incredibly important in the destigmatization of mental illness. So that's a really interesting phrase you've just used, which is the phrase right to be ill. Um, and we don't talk about cancer patients or people with broken limbs or whatever uh, or other diseases as having to assert a right to illness. This is something that they have uh, and they should be treated as of right. But do you take the view that mental health is still a kind of a, in a, a Cinderella position relative to the rest of medicine where it's the conditions it seeks to treat are concerned? 
Um, that's exactly it, Shane. I, I feel that there's a lot of sympathy for individuals, as there should be, who have medical illnesses or who require surgery. But we're living in a shadow of a big fallacy, the Freudian fallacy, which which has really seeped into cultural history um, as an idea that somebody who's mentally ill can always overcome it. And all of what we hear in the media really is about people who get off antidepressants. And somehow or other, this is valued more highly than individuals who perhaps have very severe depression and can't get off um, their medication. For example, why are people with low cholesterol on cholesterol-lowering drugs? That's one of the biggest swindles, I think, of modern medicine, when you can bring your cholesterol down uh, quite easily uh, by one or two units. Um, Obviously, people who have very, very high cholesterol, familial hypercholesterolemia, they need cholesterol-lowering drugs. Well, it's the same with mental health. There are mental health issues that can be dealt with in a lifestyle manner. And uh, then there are mental health issues that require medicine, like in all aspects of the body. And I think individuals who have mental illnesses, as distinct from mental health issues, that have lost out in the wonderful explosion of really examining our mental health. Um, you know, your, your, your wonderful book in praise of walking and, you know, mindfulness is fantastic for everybody. We should all practice and try and improve our self-awareness and our awareness of others, our awareness of nature, which indeed walking is very much about both. Um, but I, I think that that end of the spectrum gets all the press and the mentally ill who are most in need of our sympathy and our care um, are, are viewed askance really. There's a lot of fear associated with it and there's very little understanding. We, we almost laugh and we use the phrase in a derogatory way, oh, they're psychotic. And, you know, if you ask me what's, what's the adjective I most is when schizophrenia is used as an adjective implying somebody who has dichotomous views that aren't reconciled. So all of this is very upsetting for clinical psychiatrists. And when we're working in psychiatry, we're really fighting against a stigma and a bias and that people can get themselves better, always without medical help. Okay, so let's just uh, travel back out and look at the book uh, itself for a moment. One thing I'm always fascinated by where authors are concerned is how they write, what the process for writing is. And uh, uh, some authors uh, write in big gobbets and go back to it intermittently. Others write a consistent 350 words or 500 words a day. Uh, Others have all sorts of other processes. And, And you just talk a little bit about the journey to writing the book and how it ended up with this most magnificent cover. Uh, what was it that you did uh, on a daily, <laughs> weekly or what other basis to actually get the words down in the form that they are? Well, I guess what I did was I I fell into a sort of uh, deep sea swimming activity and In a book about memory, you're meandering. And I was hoping in writing the book that that would stimulate that sort of process in everybody. 
um, to sort of pause in our own memories, if you like, and examine them in relation to where we experience the world in the present moment. So I guess I was floating through regions of my childhood, through regions of my own children's childhood, through my own personal life, um, through the neuroscience. And really, I suppose when you suspend yourself in a state of introspection like that, you, um, you're not really planning what's going to come out. And I would say the book was very unplanned. Uh, but that there were things that remained in my mind because of their emotional importance to me, as is the process with everybody. And I was, I was kind of flowing through those moments. Um, and in conjunction with that, I was, you know, I became, uh, some patients made a huge impression on my memory. And really, I, I think, you know, our, um, Curiosity is our passion. For me, it is. And they remained with me like Edith, um, who had a postpartum psychosis and whose experiences were really extraordinary. And they were very vivid for her, all the more so because she'd never been psychotic before. Postpartum psychosis is a psychosis that I, I say fells people um, after they've had a baby. And, uh, you know, having a baby is a very overwhelming experience. Uh, creating a human being really is about as dramatic as human life gets. But to create a human being and to fall into a, a, a paranoid psychotic state with a medley of different moods, um, ranging from euphoria to downright terror, um, altered experiences and sensations, is, is something that is very difficult for somebody who hasn't experienced it to imagine. And psychiatrists love treating it because it's so special and it's so tender and difficult and violent sometimes. So it, it's a very, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very special uh, time in a woman's life and it's viewed as very special within psychiatry as well. So you know, Edith remained with me because she was such a perceptive, intelligent person who told me and who taught me at the end of the psychosis that although, yes, she could agree with me, the clinical psychiatrist, that what she'd experienced wasn't real, and I'm putting up my hands in inverted commas with real, that the memories were. And then I began to, I think that was my, the first dawning and um, I've called the book Dawnings, of my understanding of memory as experience in the present moment and of the whole topic of memory really as being a neural lattice of past experience that is experienced in the present. So what I learned from her wasn't really something I think I could have learned from talking to uh, people who hadn't experienced a psychosis, which I love doing as well, but you do get these astonishing insights when into into experience states that we sort of take for granted, but when they're absent in psychosis, you get a fantastic insight into uh, you know what 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 we're trying to do in neuroscience, which is a more patient investigation of things really.
And in terms of the actual process of writing, did you write by hand? Did you write by using your laptop? How did you go about actually producing a manuscript? What was the, the grind where that was concerned? Um, was laptop. <laughs> laptop, okay. Well, not longhand, um, you know. Doctors can't write. Um, uh, no, it was on the laptop, but I would write, I would get into a topic and I would write and write about it and then I would cut it all out and then I'd reintroduce a paragraph of it. So it was very much um, uh, a flow of ideas and experiences that wasn't really um, that coherent um, when I initially wrote it all. And the, the initial book was probably three times the length of the product. Um, as you know, in neuroscience, we're ta- taught to be very pithy. And the projects um, that we do and that we subsequently write about are incredibly condensed. And I think I over-condensed it. Um, and when people read it, they were pausing after every sentence for a few minutes. So I gradually expanded it. After that, I think, with a little bit of, uh, you know, with, with the structure that I had created. But I very much had to restructure the ideas that flowed. So you could say uh, the initial thing was a splurge following from the, the um, you know, a kind of non-conscious, conscious slash conscious um, sea of impressions and experiences and then perhaps I did what the, what we do in academia and I over condensed it. Well, not in the humanities, but in the sciences. And then once I had that structure, I was able to expand and I hope make it comprehensible because I did want an average reader with, you know, a, a fairly good education to be able to follow this. I, you know, I want, as you do, people to have the language of neuroscience at their disposal to understand what's happening to them. It's it's all part of, I think, the mindfulness movement in a general sense that's been so um, important for the world and for individuals in moving forward in their lives in a happier, more balanced way. Okay, so that's that's great. Uh, now let's let's just pick up on Edith for a moment. Um, I hadn't really intended to start with her, but I think actually it's a, a great starting point. Um, the story of the the kind of postpartum psychosis is really uh, quite striking. And uh, what I'm curious to know is uh, when Edith came to you first, how did you conduct the interview with her? Um, and I, I I'll, I'll just. Before you start, I'll, I'll just tell you what I mean. I, I was reading recently some of the clinical interviewing literature, and uh, one piece of advice I came across, which I just thought was wonderful, was when a, a, a client or a patient comes into you, your job is to, quote, listen as hard as you can, unquote, uh, which I, I, I'm just wondering how you went about uh, talking to her in the first instance and how you maintain a thread of rapport with her through the the various interviews and uh, encounters you would have had with her over time. Yeah, I I think it's two things, Shane. I think it's both listening and watching. What you see is is terribly important in psychiatry. You're basically, with severe illness and uh, psychosis, 
you're trying to access information that the individual does not want you to have. <laughs> um, if I was hearing voices that were telling me that others wanted to kill me and I'm talking to you, well, whatever force it is that wants to kill you could very well be operating through me. And in the case of postpartum psychosis, where these delusions have only been around for a while, they tend to flit from person to person. Um, so you want to watch the eyes, the body language, and you want to watch them watching you. Because often the individual will be watching you. And they might watch your hands move. So my hands are moving, which they do quite a bit. And they might interpret that as a signal. I'm signaling something else. Everything is, everything has an expansive meaning in psychosis. Everything is expanded out and there's very little coherence. Um, you don't come back to the point where you started from. You wander off into a tangent really of paranoia. So Edith is lucky. She doesn't make a lot of eye contact with me. So why isn't she making eye contact with me? Perhaps she's not making eye contact with me. Because I can read her thoughts if she looks at me, because she's transparent in some way. So, and then if her eyes move suddenly over to a point in the corner of the room, which happens with a lot of psychotic individuals, we learn that that is them trying to locate the origin of the voices. They're hearing voices and they're coming from over there. So suddenly they move away and they look over there. So we say if we see somebody doing this, that they are responding. They're responding to psychotic experiences. And they will tell you they're hearing voices because that would be giving the game away and it would be exposing them. But they're looking around them, but very suddenly. So it's, it's, it's important to watch. Listening is important, but you often don't get a lot of information from a psychotic patient. Um, and the, uh, it's important to listen what, to what they're not telling you. So, yeah. Um, as well as what they're telling you. Um, so a lot of psychiatry is experience. And over time, I have learned to lean, um, what people, what their inner states are. Now I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a, uh, hyper immersion. Um, my, my, in a, in a way, the boundaries flow quite easily for me. And that's, that's the way I am composed in terms of the way my, my brain works. So that probably has given me an advantage in terms of putting myself in, um, from the point of view of a person experiencing a psychosis. But I, I think psychiatrists, the, 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 um, the experience that we glean is of phenomenology and understanding without speech sometimes of what the person is saying. I think if somebody is coherent, it's, it's important to listen, but also very important to watch. I find um, telepsychiatry extremely difficult because when somebody comes into a room you see their fidgets, you see their twitches, you see how they respond to their environment. Um, you see a whole, a whole range of um, responses 
live responses that are very difficult to glean, even the way a person moves. Some people, you know, some people stand very strongly in the world. Their stance is important. And other people, you know, they're more timid and they retreat. All of these things are very difficult. So I think psychiatry is as much about visual, um, watching very closely, um, hearing very closely, but also feeling. I I can, you know, I, I, I can, I think I can get inklings of the feelings people are experiences. For example, if I'm in a room with a manic patient, they don't hide it from me for very long. Even if they're trying to contain it, I can, you know, you can feel the um, euphoria seeping through. So I, I think psychiatrists operate on different levels and multiple levels, and it's very much dependent on the psychiatrist's personality and way of being in the world as well. So let's just talk about hearing voices for a moment. Um, You have the remarkable statistic in your book that about 10% of the population uh, hear voices in at least occasionally at some point during their lives. And uh, I think this is something that's not widely appreciated. so there's a, there's a wonderful book by Charles Ferniehoe a few years ago uh, on the experience of hearing voices and his numbers come to where your numbers are as well. Um, I, I, I often have, have uh, a kind of worry that uh, we stigmatize the idea that people hear voices in ways that uh, might actually make people feel that they should be ill when they're not. And I, I, I give it in the following context. We know that children talk to imaginary others. They do this for years and then they become embarrassed about doing so. But adults talk to themselves, usually sub-vocally. We don't like to be heard uh, uh, speaking to ourselves. And I I wonder about the idea of hearing voices. Is this part of the self-regulatory system that we have that has in in some sense uh, budded off in some way and that we, in the experience of psychosis, it hasn't been integrated back into our self-regulatory system. Or do you see or, or imagine or, that the whole process of hearing voices is something quite distinct from that? I think both are true, Shane. Um, but I think a specific illness which used to be called dementia precox and which we now call um, either paranoid schizophrenia or disorganized schizophrenia, where there is a definite pathology in the brain. And it is not as a consequence of, as you said, an evolving psychological process. It's there because the person has some sort of genes that are some sort of incoherence in uh, bringing brain processes together, it seems to me. Um, And I think most of us would agree now that schizophrenia is a disorder of connectivity, of bringing different aspects of the workings of the brain together to form a coherent whole. So, um, and of course, we, we, we... uh, when you, to answer the question about the spectrum of hearing voices and whether some people with psychosis are at a very extreme end of that spectrum, I think that's true as well. 
because we do see a lot, not a lot, but a few individuals, actually, it's it's rare, who have been so um, traumatized in unimaginable ways, I think, to people who've had a, a relatively stable upbringing and, and whose brain processes can't be coherent. If you've only ever suffered abuse and have nobody to salvage you, how can you model your brain on a normal world? Some children's worlds, I mean, without, um, you know, war- children who are made to bear arms and kill other people. Um, I, had a, I had a soldier once who was suffering from PTSD and he, he could not get the image of one child soldier killing another from his mind. He was a father of three young children. And, you know, how how do you add that up? Um, and of course, we we see people who've had horrifically abusive childhoods. And I, I outlined one of those in my book of a woman called Frances, who was sexually, physically, emotionally, not just abused, but absolutely neglected. She was treated as if she wasn't a human being and certainly not as a vulnerable, developing child. She was abused by everybody. And Frances grew up in this astonishingly toxic environment in which her very being was negated. And she went on to develop in a very incoherent way. She couldn't make sense of the world around her. So things really disintegrated, or rather they didn't disintegrate, they never integrated. And uh, Frances was effectively living in an incoherent psychotic world um by the time she was a teenager and you know that that i don't know whether that happened she she evolved into having a very serious psychotic disorder um that we you had to use drugs to treat now i don't know i don't think anybody can tell us whether she would have developed a psychotic disorder without that toxic childhood um you know i think about her all the time. She, to me, she is somebody who's on the verge of the sort of psychosis you're talking about, which is the sort of uh, hearing voices that emerges from somebody who's thrust into a very interior world where there isn't anybody out there that she can connect with, that can bring it all together, that can contain her emotionally, that can make sense of the world. Um, so I don't know, and I don't know if we'll ever know about individuals like that, um, you know, children where both parents have killed themselves and a lot of traveler children, believe it or not, uh, 10% of, uh, individuals in the traveling community in Ireland die by suicide. I mean, it's an astonishing statistic. So in my practice, I have some children who have no parents. So can that child avoid being depressed? I don't know. Do they have a depressive gene anyway? And that is why their parents kill themselves? I don't know. But there are cases that are at the fringe of incredibly toxic developmental issues and very serious genetically determined mental illnesses that would out regardless of the environment. So, uh, so the, 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 yes, undoubtedly there are genetically determined illnesses that would occur anyway, regardless of the environment. But I do think there are also cases of, you know, the merry make-beliefs, <laughs> um, the children who perhaps are lonely and 
um, a friend inside. But as you said, these friends slowly make their way out of the child's imagination as they, you know, develop into a world um, shared with other human beings. And, uh, you know, out of that, um, I suppose, that very egotistic state of, uh, of childhood. And just just to finish on non-pathological voice hearing, um, it's, you know, it's, it's very interesting. I often think of the fact that um, schizophrenia is a polygenetic disorder. It's composed of, mo- you know, multiple, probably small effect genes. So why wouldn't we have a spectrum of voice hearing in the community and among people? Um, I myself uh, have never experienced a voice in my entire life. So for me, it's a, it's a question of imagining it, but I can definitely understand, um, melancholic, um, feelings as I, as, as indeed I think most people yeah. can because most of us have experienced that through life events. So we're much more, uh, uh you know, able to, um, empathize with those feelings in other people. And so we were, we can easily recognize depression as everybody who's alive experiences that. But it's much more difficult to imagine psychotic ideas. And, um, you know, well, that's one of the reasons I guess I wrote the book as well is to say, you know, I've never experienced cancer, but I can imagine not as a person who is, but I can imagine how dreadful that must be. But it's much more, difficult to understand alien mental experiences i think yeah uh, let's just talk about francis for a moment um her case to me in in certain respects is actually the most interesting in the book uh because she presents with um a terrible set of experiences um and she also falls into that peculiar place uh where I think there's been a, 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 a trend of treatment that uh, internationally that doesn't serve her well. And I think you deal with this really beautifully in the book. Um, there's, since the 1980s, there's been this idea of, quote, care in the community. Um, and there's been a, a closing down of residential care for people with uh, psychiatric problems. I, and I, I'm often struck by the, the issue that... Uh, psychiatrists will get or psychologists will get an hour a week uh, to meet somebody. So um, before the interruption for Windows, <laughs> I was uh, asking you about the case of Francis. And uh, <laughs> the I, I, to me, in some respects, the, the case of Francis is possibly the most interesting in the book because it opens so many questions about how we conceive of psychotherapy, psychiatric mm-hmm. treatment, and a whole range of, of uh, other issues. Uh, and what often strikes me when reading the literature is the limited amount of time that uh, a client gets with a therapist. Uh, and we expect wonderful things from a 50-minute encounter or whatever the, the encounter has to be. And uh, during the 1980s, this care in the mm. community idea uh, started uh, where residential homes uh, were closed for often what were thought of as good reasons, perhaps were in, in fact good reasons, but 
we now know that a substantial fraction of the prison population are actually people who need psychiatric treatment uh, and have, and instead of them being in a safe institution where they can get appropriate treatment, they've ended up in an unsafe institution, uh, a prison environment where a prison psychiatrist or a prison psychologist has to has to treat them. So I, I wonder, just reflecting on the last 30 years of, of that kind of way of thinking, how should we organize uh, treatment pathways, assuming we had unlimited budgets? Um, what would be the ideal pathway if you had a patient like uh, Francis come to you now? Uh, yeah, the whole movement in psychiatry is profoundly tragic. Uh, we we and it's it's been very much influenced by Freudian way of thinking that really there is no mental illness that cannot be fully cured, and um, you know this is a, a, a fallacy of, as I've said earlier. Now the nineteen eighties were in a way a bleak time for psychiatry, of course, and uh, there was a justified popular movement against the sort of treatments that people received because in a sense people weren't uh, the illness wasn't addressed and um, people were cared for in asylums and what I wanted to really say in the book was yes this was uh, you know people were on you know on a pile they were discarded as it were into these massive institutions but the institutions did provide asylum. They did provide care. And what we have done now is we have taken away asylum. We have taken away places of care for individuals with severe mental illness. Um, we are very largely dependent on family for caring for people with psychosis. And families can't do this. At the moment, for example, I have a, a young man who is the eldest in a sibship of four. And the parents have no time for the other children. Um, he's, uh, like a lot of young people with psychosis, he's responding to the psychotic voices, to the psychotic experiences that he's having. He's paranoid, he's angry, he's aggressive. On the surface, you, you know, you, you could say that he's, um, disruptive and, um, really impossible to deal with. Now, if this were somebody with autistic, uh, with autism or with, um, a, a medical problem or a physical disability, um, they would be given special care. But this individual is not really given anything apart from inpatient care. And then afterwards, what is cold care in the community? Now, we have wonderful people working in the community, but they can't visit everybody all the time. So this man would, for example, possibly get two or three visits a week and come into our day hospital for therapy and for you know, different forms of group group activity, obviously curtailed at the moment, but in the usual run of things, they get that. But that isn't enough. Um, you know, it isn't enough for somebody to emerge from a profoundly psychotic state. Uh, you need months of a safe environment, months of a place of safety, perhaps even years. 
And if the person recovers and comes back into what I call the world of shared reality, well, that's great. You can then possibly rehabilitate them at home with a lot of one-on-one work. But some people have bad psychosis, like some people have bad asthma, like some people have bad hypertension. And they it cannot be controlled um, to the level of a normal uh, a normal blood pressure range, a normal lipid range, normal diabetics. And we, in every branch of medicine, we have individuals who have severe and chronic illness. And hospitals really are filled with such individuals, uh, medical hospitals. And but afterwards, these uh, these individuals will be able to rehabilitate in the community. But with psychosis, that's extremely, extremely difficult. And we, I don't think we have enough inpatient care, and that might go against the grain of the, uh, of the um, thrust of medicine at the moment and the thrust of psychiatry. But it's my opinion that we don't give our young people with psychosis enough of a chance of high um high care the 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 drive in psychiatrists get people out into the community and they're almost stars assigned to psychiatrists for the shortest period of stay this is viewed as the ultimate good treatment get people in quickly and get them out quickly and i i don't think we understand that some people with severe illness need long times for the brain as i have said in the book too, to make a new foundational set of memories around which they can go into the world and share that world in a common, with a common sense of reality. So a lot of people don't get that care. They never really assimilate into the community. They land up, um, obviously, um, you know, in some situation where they're in trouble with the law or people are frightened and they land up in jail. And then we, we saw in the situation last week in Ireland, we had a situation where the staff in our national forensic treatment unit were actually blocking a patient coming into the unit on, on, on foot of a court order to admit this person to a specialized unit because the legal system doesn't seem to understand that these resources in psychiatry are so scarce and so overutilized. There is an idea there. Well, if they're sick, they need help. But if on the if we're saying that we don't asylum, if we're saying that acute care is the wrong way to go, well, you know, it isn't compatible with a judicial system that's saying this person needs to be in a specialized unit for their own safety and for the safety of the public. So I think psychiatry are caught between, uh, on the one hand, um being told and there being a general belief out there that uh, we we should move towards community psychiatry, towards integration of the person as soon as possible. And on the other hand, keeping the public safe. So we get hit on both counts. You either lock the person up and throw away the key and they get no therapy, uh, which is the idea of the old asylum, or you let somebody out too early and they... Um, you know, behave ultimately in an antisocial way through no fault of their own, through the fault of the illness, and they get locked up in jail. So we really, we need to look at all of this very honestly. And we've thrown out all of our long-term care systems, which I think we need to be, 
I, I think we need as a society to bring back. So it's almost as if the word asylum has to be recovered. Um, we have the word asylum seeker, of course, for people trying to flee uh, conflict zones and other places. But the phrase asylum as a, as a friendly word, uh, a place of refuge that uh, patients can be brought to for the treatment that they need for as long as they need it is something that we have lost and we need to bring back again. And, and we shouldn't have the old quote-unquote Victorian uh, asylum, uh, but uh, we do need uh, a modern method of, of approaching such patients. Yes, uh, absolute, absolutely. And in this, you know, extended inpatient um, picture that I have, I'm not, I'm not sure how much it is shared yet by mainstream psychiatry, but by the planning of the services. Um, you know, I think we need lots of psychotherapy, psychotherapy that's um, aimed at giving the individual insight into their psychosis rather than emerging themselves in the psychosis and emerging with a new vision um, of the world. I mean, I, you know, you know there, there was the anti-psychiatry movement of the 1960s read, led by Ronnie Lang, whom I am a great admirer of, by the way, because although he was very anti-establishment, he did immerse himself in the experience of psychosis and really probably for the first time spoke about an uh, introspective experiences of psychosis um, in a way that was very dignified for who experiencing them. Uh, he presented these states as subjective mental states um, rather than them being objectified and ridiculed really. Um, are treated as just frank pathology um, uh, by by psychiatry in general. So I think he did an awful lot for psychiatry, but he went too far. He almost said that psychosis was a journey of enlightenment. Now, that's exactly what it's not. It's a journey of being lost, um, of losing your mind, as somebody with psychosis recently said to me. She said, I only know now what the phrase losing your mind is. And she, not me, used the phrase, I was completely mad. And now I'm not mad. And, uh, you know, this is, this is a, it's a, it's a funny place to be after having been mad, but it's better. I'm shaky, but I'm glad I'm back here. So, you know, to help people understand that their mind has been invaded and colonized by pathological process and bring them back to the world uh, it, it coax them back coax them back with a happy normality that that's my view it shouldn't be uh, an exploration of pathological experiences it should be a warm welcome in an asylum of a person back to um back to a world that they can build their own complexities on so that that actually anticipates what really is my 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 final couple of questions, which is around the future of treatment in in uh, psychiatry. Um, there's been a, a huge effort, which has I think largely been a failure to uh, have very precision based uh, pharmacotherapies um, based around uh, an emerging, a supposedly emerging body of genetic evidence, which really hasn't resulted in the in the generation of new medications. But there's a kind of a, a parallel ferment in uh, psychotherapy 
A new focus on dialectical behavior therapy is, is uh, one particular uh, route forward. And you use the lovely phrase, you could think of DBT as, quote, parenting for adults, unquote. Um, I'm just wondering what you think the future decades uh, are going to bring where uh, treatment are concerned or, or what you would like to see the future decades bring. Yeah, well, I would like the future decades to bring um, an increased awareness of broken brains <laughs> and uh, increased understanding and sympathy for and allowances for individuals uh, with uh, mental illnesses that are now stigmatized. I was in my supermarket the other day and um, I was inadvertently making noise. I think I was on my phone and a shop assistant said, oh, can you, there's no phones on Tuesday evening from seven to eight. And I said, oh, sorry, I didn't know. And she said, yeah, this is our um, autism and we're minimizing um, noise. I mean, I was so thrilled. I thought it was such a beautiful thing to do. And I think we're seeing these, you know, autistic spectrum disorder and people with frank autism are now viewed as atypical and special. And we value them. And we, you know, we can see how they can contribute to society by making us all stop. And I think that's what sickness does. It makes us all stop in the moment and examine ourselves and it brings out the kindness in individuals it sort of has that function of tuning us into a different level of kindness and appreciation of vulnerability and a, a gratitude for health as well so um so yeah I, I mean i would like that I, I think we need all of society in this awareness and acceptance of psychotic disorders and severe um, mood disorders. I think we also need a separation, uh, uh, enlightened separation of mental health from psychiatry. Uh, I'm, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm not a mental health specialist. I see myself as treating ill people um, and I see psychologists of a certain ilk of treating mentally ill individuals. And this is a very specialized form of psychology and of medicine that you, you can't be, I don't, I don't think you can be a psychologist. You can just jump into psychiatry from mental health. It's a very specialist form of treatment. And, you know, in the same way that a neuropsychologist is a specialist psychologist. And then there's the whole body of mental health. And people self-diagnosing and people in a way hijacking, um, these disorders from severely, um, ill people. You know, uh, people, people arranging their socks in a row and color coordinated is not OCD any more than being uh, a person who enjoys solitude and introspection is schizotypal or, um, any more than somebody with, uh, you know, lability of mood is bipolar. So I, I think I would see the future enlightenment of an understanding of mental illness. Um, I would see in that also a separation out of mental health from illness. Uh, you know, it's so, you know, I, I don't think we have that an awareness of illness. And I think people 
dilute these very serious illnesses in very trivial ways. So, um, you know, we all struggle, but most of us don't have an illness. And if we don't struggle, you know, walking, running, swimming, uh, taking exercise, trying to uh, contain our diets and think about our emotions through awareness, we're not going to reach our full potential as human beings. But we also need to treat our mentally ill people with particular modes of treatment that uh, are not there today. And um, how I would see psychiatry going in in tandem with neuroscience, trying to work these out. The, the targeted treatments, as you say, are dirty, but I wouldn't say they're failures. Um, no, I wouldn't you know, say that I see people coming back literally from... Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I would agree with you. I wouldn't uh, see them as failures. But, but, you know, I, I think th- there's just been a, a bit of an over-promising of what the genomic revolution will do in terms of rational drug design. Um, you, it's not there yet. It may, it may never get there. We don't know. Yeah. Uh, but, but you yeah. do have off-the-shelf treatments that demonstrably do have positive effects. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, I think uh, you're absolutely right about what you said. And I reacted in a very defensive way because people come to us, say to us, or they're around to say to us, oh, you know, those drugs made them worse. Uh, whereas what we see is we see people coming in uh, completely deluded and they are, you know, they, and it's, 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 it's kind of really strange to think that people could think a very specific psychotic way and then a few months after treatment think in a relatively normal way. So I see antipsychotic drugs as being hugely important and particularly clozapine which can really bring a person back from a density to a normal life, a normal life that has limitations, but nonetheless, a normal life that is shared and that can be happy. Um, so antipsychotic drugs are very good and they are fantastic, actually, and particularly the newer ones that have fewer side effects, but they are absolutely not targeted. And I think that's because we don't know we know that psychosis is a disease of the connecting up of the different functions of the brain. So in a sense, it's the most mysterious of yes. the brain illnesses. It's the most widespread and it's, it's terribly complex. Um, in a way, everybody can get psychotic. They can get psychotic from confusion. They can get psychotic from unhealthy, inhuman isolation. And, um, you know, they can get psychotic from like Francis did from incredibly alienating and toxic experiences in childhood. So whatever it is in this connecting together is what, uh, you know, the outcome is different forms of psychosis. I'm not going to find it in the genome. My, my, My guess is that we're going to find it in the wiring. And of course, the drugs that are at the, um, you know, the, the common pathways, at the end of that wiring um, of that connectome, like dopamine, those drugs are at the end of it. Blocking that will cause a blockage of the psychosis, but of course it blocks other things as well. As well, yeah. And, you know, drugs do. Yeah. So, I mean, Shane, I think it'll be a combination of the, you know, the wiring, the chemistry, and things that are way beyond us as yet. And that 
certainly aren't going to be elucidated by the time um, I'm carried, I'm carried out um, of at the moment. But I, I do see great hope um, in the future. Look where we've come in such a short time, in 20 or 30 years. So I, I, I hope that neuroscience and psychiatry will collaborate more closely together in the future to, um, you know, for the greater benefit of neuroscience and psychiatry. But of course, my, um, you know, my emotions are deeply embedded in the, uh, you know, in the clinical work of, of psychiatry. And, and at the moment, you know, you're as good, uh, psychiatrist, um, as are your intuitions and your, um, emotional and cognitive organization of the individual. And it's not a good place to be for patients, really. <laughs> okay. So we, we're going to finish up there. I want to thank Veronica for her, a, a fantastic, uh, uh, interview. Uh, her book is called The Rag and Bone Shop, How We Make Memories and Memories Make Us. It's available in hardback, uh, published by Alan Lane. Uh, you can get it on Amazon or uh, preferably uh, perhaps uh, order it through uh, your local book uh, shop who would be very grateful for the uh, the business. But nonetheless, this for uh, uh, anybody who wants a, a view of what it's like to be a psychiatrist in the modern world uh, and in the contemporaneous world, this book is absolutely hard to beat. One thing that's really striking about it um, for the general reader is the wide range of reference to the uh, humanities. Uh, Beckett, uh, Virginia Woolf, and many others uh, make m uh, many appearances scattered right throughout the book. And uh, I think this brings a humanization to it, along with the case studies that are present in the book that uh, it might otherwise make it slightly dry reading. Um, and I want to emphasize it is not dry reading. I think this is the kind of book that uh, every politician and policymaker should uh, be reading in the mental health sphere. But I think this is a book that anybody who's interested in these kinds of issues that are at the nexus of, of uh, uh, the, the extremes of, of human experience, this is the, definitely the best place, uh, in my view, uh, to start. Uh, comparisons have been made between this book and the writings of Oliver Sacks. Uh, Sacks is wonderful. I think this is better. So go and buy this book. Thank you.